Welcome to the Ultimate Coach Podcast, Conversations from Being, inspired by the book, The Ultimate Coach, written by Amy Hardison and Alan Thompson. Join us each week with the intention of expanding your state of being, and your experience will be remarkable. Remember, this is a podcast about being. It is a podcast about you. To explore more deeply, visit theultimatecoachbook.com. Now, enjoy today's conversation from B. Welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Coach Podcast. I'm Meredith Bell, one of your hosts for the show. And our guest today is Carla Rottering, who is featured in several places in the Book of Being, also known as The Ultimate Coach. As I was rereading her beautiful contributions, I just knew that she would have a lot to share with us on the podcast. So, Carla, I am so delighted to welcome you to the show. Oh, so thank you so much, Meredith. I, I'm really moved to be here and have just even a small piece to contribute to the growing message and understanding that's emerged from this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know you have so much to contribute. I think it would be fun and interesting for our listeners to kind of roll back to when you first met Steve. How did you meet him, get acquainted with him? So I met Steve in probably a different context than than a lot of folks, because Steve and I were students together at the University of Santa Monica. So we were classmates. And in that context, you know, you just everybody's sort of on a level playing field and you don't have that social context at all, but you also don't have a very large professional context at all. Mm -hmm. You are there to do something together that is psycho-spiritual in nature. And so that drew us to a shared understanding and and ultimately a collaboration that sort of marked uh, the beginning of our relationship is unique from my point of view. And, and we, you know, we didn't really connect very much in the very beginning, but as we move through the curriculum, there's a, a um, project that you do in the second year and they try to create project teams that are geographical so that you can meet in person and do those kinds of things. So there were four of us from Phoenix, and Steve and I were two of those people who met to um, sort of roll up our sleeves and support each other in those projects. And and that's where I think our opportunity to know each other at a deeper level really began to unfold. And yeah. in particular, speaking of the project, that was referred to in the book, The Amy Project. What did you think about that? <laughs> So I look back on this now, and honestly, we did not know a lot about, you know, what we did. We kind of had some glimmer of what we did. But here's what I thought that I knew about Steve. I thought that he had been the CEO of something important and that somehow he no longer had that job and that whatever had surrounded that he was now at home doing something out of his garage. That was my understanding. 
And when when this project came up, you know, we all picked doing stuff, right? And Steve chose to bring his time and his attention to his wife, Amy. And I, um, although the romantic part of me really loved that, the you know, the part of me that was in the world and really wanted something different and better for Steve, the way that I understood his life at that time, was really frustrated with him. Like, I really wanted to just sit him down and say, okay, don't let this opportunity pass you by. This is an opportunity to create something that will get you back on your feet and out in the world and at the head of some company. And and he was so sweet when, when I sort of would insinuate those things. And so loving and so kind and so firm in his devotion to the project that he has chosen. And it took me a few weeks into the project to go, oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, he really doesn't need me to tinker in his professional well-being. <laughs> but but I moved. I You know, I interfaced with him from that misunderstanding as though what he did was the most important thing that I could identify about the opportunity that this project would bring to him. And did you see any difference with him over time as he worked on that project with Amy? You know, he was, so first of all, he was kind of like a kid in a candy store, right? If this is his favorite person on the planet, um, as far as I can tell, and he sort of was in awe. I mean, and that awe continued to grow. And he would just kind of bubble over with the awe that he was experiencing by bearing witness to this woman who has a very independent experience of life and is also so deeply connected to him. So he saw things about her that he hadn't seen before, and he looked for them. You know, I mean, he looked through different eyes during the course of this project and saw things that not only expanded his loving and his reverence and his regard for Amy, but also expanded him in ways that, that was obvious to those of us on his project team that he also continued to open and open and open throughout the course mm. of that project. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, I remember reading that in the book too, his Amy project and the devotion he had towards it. I love having you bring it to life like that because I think for each of us, one of the takeaways is who in our lives, whether it's our spouse, one of our kids, or someone else who's really important to us, how do we make a project out of learning more about that person and then creating them at the same time so that we end up with this deeper um, and more meaningful relationship? I just saw that as an inspiration to yeah. really look beyond the superficial that we often see with someone we may live with day in and day out to go deeper in terms of really trying to understand them. Did that, watching him do that, did that have an impact on your 
relationships or on the way you were seeing others? Yeah, I mean, I it, it certainly translated to my, you know, my immediate family, that sort of little intimate inner space that we share with only people who know us the best. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, I'm not sure that's true for Steve, but it's, but for me in that moment, it was really, uh, it sort of allowed me to also do what I witnessed him doing, which was to see through different eyes, right? To set aside anything that I thought I might know about, especially about my children who were adults at that time, especially about my children and to just see them as really divine souls walking the earth on their own divine path that I wasn't in charge of (laughs) and wasn't only occurring in relationship to my maternity to them. Right. So it really, it really lifted me up to a higher place from which to, to really be with my immediately immediate family. And I also think, Meredith, that it that it sort of seeped into my professional relationships. Mm. Um, so that when I showed up at a bedside, I was bringing something different to that bedside. That awareness that this also is a unique divine being having an experience of life that is far more expansive than these 12 minutes. Oh, and I think this would be a good time. Share what your profession is so people understand what it was you were doing. Yeah. Interacting with. Yeah. So I have been a a pulmonary um, at that time was doing critical care. So pulmonary critical care physician for almost 40 years now and, and was very, very, very busy doc and was also involved in leadership. So when I met Steve, I had about an 80 to 90 hour work week and I was chief of staff of a 1200 member medical staff at a hospital in Phoenix. And I was a single mom. So, so I had what I called sort of white knuckled my way into you know, into the place that I was occupying at that time. And that's part of what got me to USM in the first place was an awareness that, you know, my my clenched fists were getting weary. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's what I did. And and it really, uh, and still do part-time, and that, and it really did sort of soften my, my bedside stance. And and I'd always had a lot of caring for my patients, but I also was very attached to, I was the expert, right? Mm-hmm. And to allow people to, to really take the position of being the expert of their own lives is probably the, the most powerful thing that that came forward for me when I watched Steve navigate this extraordinary journey of the Amy project and his 10 inch binder that accompanied that. Mm, thank you. Well, I'm curious because some time passed 
and you then ended up coaching with Steve. So talk about how how you were led to consider him as a coach. You know, it's interesting because I um, I don't even know if Steve knows this, but so Steve Hardison was not my first choice. I was at USM in a course that Steve Chandler was um, one of the faculty members, and he was, and I was, I was taken by Steve Chandler. I was at the edge of my chair every time he spoke. And once the course was completed, I caught him by the sleeve and sat him down and said, "Would you, would you coach me?" And he said, "Oh no, no, you need to go." I'm not going to coach you. You need to go to Hardison. And and I thought, well, was I just rejected by <laughs> And when I say that to, to Chandler now, he says, I don't remember that, but it happened. Hmm. So I sat with that for maybe two days and just had this like clarity that that was a message delivered to me with purpose. So I called Steve. I didn't have a lot of deep questioning about it. I didn't like wring my hands. I, I just, I just had this like, oh, thanks for that information. Hmm. Yeah. So I showed up with Steve, and I had, I had a notebook. You know, I had a notebook, and I had all my stuff written in my notebook. But all the, th- all the expectations that I would have for this first year. <laughs> because I wanted to make sure I got plenty of bang for my buck, right? Mm -hmm. And and again, you know, he meets all of that with with such incredible grace. And there's a kind of delight that's sort of mixed up with, like, compassion. I mean, it's it's almost (laughs) rascal-ish, you know, that, like, caring. But, you know, he he, um, said, oh, yeah, that's, that's really good, Carla. We're going to put that aside, and I'm going to. I'm. We're going to start here. We're going to start looking for your listenings. And I thought, oh, for crying out loud! <laughs> I'm busy. I mean, and I don't even know what you're talking about, right? But it started in that space, really, of beginning to become far more intimate with what drove my days, what anchored my the reality of my experience, recognize, really beginning to recognize that that, that all resided within me and not out there, which is where I wanted it to be so that I could complain. Hmm. And, and really be, and, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a novice to this journey. I just finished a two year degree in spiritual psychology. So I was well primed to continue to deepen that inner awareness and continue to recognize that that kind of wisdom was liberating. Hmm. So unexpected questions and and comments and and I guess somewhat challenges from what you had 
in your mind going into this conversation what what you expected did was a major shift required for you to adapt to what Steve had in mind assuming he had something in mind but what he was focusing on compared to what you thought you would be focusing on well right because i you know as i look back on that i think when i showed up you know on his doorstep that i really expected him to be sort of a performance coach mm. and again you have to remember that i really didn't explore very deeply with either steve hardison or steve chandler who sent me in his direction you know how he what the nature of his work was Hmm. So I knew that he worked for some really pretty impressive companies. My impression was that he would he would help me perform in areas that I didn't feel I had competencies yet. Hmm. So, but 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 the other thing for me is that I've always been pretty agile uh, in sort of moving from one space to to seeing it differently or being willing to, you know, see what shows up. Mm-hmm. So I was pretty, uh, so it did take a shift, but it wasn't like painful or sacrificial or hard. Mm-hmm. There were some hard things, but shifting my mindset was not, in the beginning, was not, was not one of those things. Mm-hmm. So... You know, the whole book is about the book of being. The whole being movement is about who we are being. So talk a little bit about that approach, because you were saying you thought it'd be more performance-based, but of course, we know that's not where where Steve focuses. What, What was it about your way of being that you had ahas or insights about as you worked with him? Yeah, well, I probably very much like like most of us, you know, my awareness was um and I, I and I had begun, you know, this this path again, but being really able to see ever more clearly how the limitations the field of possibilities that I thought were available to me was set in place by my thinking, by my by my own limitations, by my limiting beliefs, by my by my young fears um, and old rigidities, mm-hmm. uh, by a yearning to be seen in a certain way by the world with the belief that that would somehow sort of certify my value. Mm. And so a lot of, I had done a lot of really good things in the world, right? But what I recognized is that I had some parallel drives towards those good things. One of them was this innate deep desire to be of loving service and i don't ever remember not having that that desire sort of blanketing that in a way that made that less forceful 
was this also this incredible desire to have the world see me as somebody who did good things in the world, mm-hmm. right? And those old, 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 you know, beliefs that what I did meant something about me mm. mattered. No, what you're describing, Carla, I bet every person listening has been there looking at the external world for validation instead yeah. of appreciating our own worth. And to me, one of the most moving stories in the book was yours, where it was the one where you you even talked about it as being a sacred time because Steve was with you. And this is one of those places where I really imagined him saying this to me, every reader, you're so close. Yes. If you only knew you are so close. If you just leaned in a little bit, you're already there. Yeah. I just loved that because it helps us, to me anyway, imagining the lack of a gap that we perceive many times between who we want to be, where we want to be, and where we see ourselves. What was the meaning of that for you, that moment when he said that to you? What did that do? Well, it was startling for me, first of all, because I'm trained in the gap conversation, right? This is where you are. This is where you want to go. What do you have to do in this gap to get from here to here? And Steve, of course, was, what if there was nothing to do except to be there? And what would it take? Who would you need to be? Right? What creation, how would you presence yourself? That's kind of the word that I use these days. But, you know, how would I presence myself to not be over here on this edge, but and then figure out a way to build a rope or something to get to the other side? And I was one of those people who always had 18 steps between now and that, (laughs) you know, (laughs) right? Right. And I would check them off and I would draw pictures of them and, you know, and outline it and all of that stuff. So, you know, so that I had this really sudden awareness that the gap was an imaginary space. Mm. Right. And that it was an imaginary space that occupied a lot of my time and attention, which is which, you know, if I can just kind of divert just a bit, which is why everything was so hard for me, right? If you have 18 steps to get to something that you could just fall into, I mean, that's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot of work. I, um, for years, I kept an appliance on the bottom shelf of my cupboards in the back, and I used it fairly frequently, and something that was in front of it I hardly ever used. And for years, I would get down on my hands and knees, and I would take that piece out, and i grab the one that I wanted and put it up in the counter, put the other one back, use it, go back down, take the first one out. Put I mean, I did this for years until I realized I didn't have to put them in that order anymore. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, it was that kind of awareness where, like, I've been doing this all this time. 
and it was never required. So there was there was that. Now, I will also say to you that it scared the BGs out of me. It scared me, right? And that really supported me in saying, this is what I say. Is that true? Am I saying this because I don't actually believe I'll ever get there? Mm. Or, and I, and, and is that coming from that place of, again, of how would I like people to see me? So, you know, it just continued to excavate down to that really fundamental innate space that is Carla and draw me into probably the most authentic inquiry with myself that I've ever experienced. I would love for you to talk more about what kind of inquiring did you do that helped you come to this realization that there didn't have to be a gap, that that was something you were putting in place. What, what I would just love for you to talk a little bit about that, because I think all of us have that inner exploring that we can do when yeah. we officially and truly believe, you know, I've sincerely believed so many of the limitations that I've seen for myself or opportunities and through studying this whole way of being and realizing it doesn't have to be that way. And, the, and I love hearing you talk about those realizations. So I'd love to explore a little bit more about what was some of that inquiring you did? Well, some of it was, uh, well, of course, I had an ongoing coaching experience with Steve. So that, but, but some of it was really, um, and I think Steve talked about this um, and continues to talk about this, but was that, that sitting quietly and really, discerning where those thoughts were coming from, whose they were, right? Um, so, for instance, as I did, and I did a lot of journaling, and I did a lot of, I, I'm a pretty contemplative person, and so I experience things that come through when I'm quiet, and I'm also a scribbler, so I scribble, kind of scribble at the same time. But, you know, when I, I, re, I remember so clearly one of the first things that I can remember as a little girl is my mother, who was just an extraordinarily loving human being, uh, saying to me, that's not for people like us. Mm. We are hard workers. We work hard. You know, we earn people's respect. But that, that's not for people like us. And, and to really sit with that single thought, which is sort of just a representative of a million things we've probably heard or said to ourselves. And by the way, I, I have this this experience of when I have a thought that is that central to my machinery, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And then I start looking for proof that that's true. 
Mm. Right? So you see that thing over there? See, that's what I'm saying. That That's not for people like us. Right? You see that thing over there? So for somebody like me, I'll never get there. And of course, the paradox is that, you know, I was a kid from a, from a town on the prairie with 100 people in it whose mother died when I was 16. And father kind of gave me 50 bucks and said, bye, who became a physician. You know, like my biggest dream was to marry a farmer because you'd always have food, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, so there was that paradox that my life did not reflect that belief, at least in certain aspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really spent a lot of time and I, and I, and I developed this pattern of sort of, oh, there I go thinking that again. Mm. Right. And not with judgment. I mean, the other thing that happened through that process is that I, I stopped bullying myself for the, th- the thoughts that were coming through and got curious. And, you know, you cannot bully and be curious at the same time. <laughs> right? So that was a profound piece of my coaching with Steve is just that simple awareness that that there was nothing to do except to show up. And he would say, you know, given this, what do you want to create? Who would you need to be to create that? And those were instant responses, you know, just instant responses. I could take a piece of paper and write down, well, this is this is how I would need to show up. And this is, you know, this is what I want to create. And this is who I would need to be. This is how I would need to presence myself. This is my beingness that would have to be my operating model or operating system to, to move forward in that way. And I made mistakes. You know, it's like, so what? I mean, that's kind of Steve's Steve's sort of relationship with, he doesn't see, he didn't see mistakes, you know, but that was like, okay, so what? That did, so what's, so now what? <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I just love so much of what you're saying. We could explore all kinds of areas. I want to just kind of pull together some things because one of the things you talked about was sitting with that one thought. And too often, it's sort of like you're saying the 18 steps. Too often we're thinking, I got to identify all these things, all the things that are holding me back. When in fact, if we get away from quantity and look at the quality of our thinking, so we can focus on what is that one central theme, perhaps, that keeps popping up that's causing us to judge ourselves, to close off possibilities. So I, I really like that. I, it's this whole thing of slowing down, taking the time instead of the doing part, right? And, and the whole idea of what could I create from this instead of being stuck at the thoughts because it's all thoughts, isn't it? We can have thoughts of opportunity as easily as thoughts of problems, depending on the lens we're looking through. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we generate somewhere between 80 and 120,000 thoughts a day. 
And at least 80% of those thoughts, according to neuroscience, are felt to be redundant. And 80% of our thoughts are negative self-talk. So that's a lot of material to navigate if you're going to pay attention. Mm -hmm. Even a bit of that. And we, you know, we have evolved in a way that has us default to that negative because then it helps us gear up to stay safe, right? Just from a neurophysiologic standpoint, right? So some of that is to also just understand, oh, these are just chemicals. This is just a, you know, a thought generating system that produces this sort of neurochemical experience and it will dissipate in six seconds, right? <laughs> takes about six seconds for the physiology to go away. So I also had that advantage of having that understanding that as long as I didn't attach to, you know, and make meaning of a thought that was no more meaningful than a cloud passing in the sky, that it would pass. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It didn't have to occupy Yeah. My Anything. You know, you're talking about the thought passing. The other thing I love that you were saying that, you know, Steve was talking about was this whole idea of so what? You know, if you've done something, if you've made a mistake, it, it's been very helpful for me to have him hear him talk about just clean up your mess and move on. So you take responsibility. It's not that you're ignoring what you've done, but you don't wallow in it. That to me was and is so freeing about how I want to be, who I want to be, is not someone that keeps dwelling on past mistakes, but recognizing them. And then do I need to make amends? Do I need to apologize? What do I need to do to clean it up and then to let it go? And that to me is the power of that. So what? It doesn't have to keep impacting my thinking and my feelings going forward. Yeah. And, and it doesn't have to be a roadblock. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have or to be something that stops you in your tracks mm-hmm. and you let it have its way with you. <laughs> you, know? Yeah. you know, that we have dominion over, you know, the experiences that, that emerge from, you know, that are part of our inner landscape. And that's, what creates our experience. Mm-hmm. I, I want to also ask you about one of the other stories in there that just really stuck with me. I think I relate to some of these stories because I they're universal in terms of things we as humans experience. This was the situation where you had an issue with your business partner and Steve was encouraging you to address it and then talk to him about what you did about it the next time you came in. And so I'd love for you to share what happened when you came back (laughs) that next time. You know, I knew in the moment that I was making that agreement that I was going to, I just did not want to do this, but I did have actually a pretty serious um, conflict with my, my partner, something that mattered a lot. And I was the senior partner, but there were some details of this that made me really, really 
uncomfortable about um, bringing this forward. And I saw it as a confrontation. But we talked through that and he, we made, I agree, made an agreement with Steve that I would have a conversation with my partner before I came back the, to my next session. So I came back to my next session. I had a three page letter that I had written to my partner and I, which I had given to my partner, I laid it on his desk and I said, you know, Steve, I just couldn't like, I could not find a time. We couldn't, I couldn't find a time to meet with him. You know, we, we work all these hours and he was never there when I was there. And, you know, I looked at his schedule and it was full and um, my schedule. Anyway, so I just gave him this letter. So I went to read it and he, <laughs> he said, you know, that is not even believable. You work in the same office. <laughs> like you work in the same office. There isn't a single reason that I can think of that you just talked about or something like that, that is any kind of excuse for not keeping this agreement. Like what you just said, it is just not even believable. It's just not believable. And, um, you know, I knew in the moment I was utterly deflated because I was, I was just certain that he would buy my story. And, 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 you know, the truth, Meredith, was that I actually didn't see it as a story mm. until, until that, that confrontation. Well, until that truth from Steve. And I knew as soon as I heard those words that I already knew those words. Right. I ultimately had the conversation and that stuff did get managed. And I, and I got a lot of support from from Steve around having that conversation because this was something that sort of um, invited a very young aspect of myself to take the wheel, right? And so to really help that, help me step into that more evolved, higher self with altitude, um, was really sort of the crux of of the work that we did around that. But what it also did for me was to help me see the spaces in which it, well, I don't even know spaces, how masterful I was at being slippery with myself, right? Without creating this sort of, this sort of magnificent stories about what limited me why something was impossible and that all of those, all of those excuses were noble. And so I got dispensation. I got to be off the hook because I mean, I was busy saving lives, <laughs> right? And, and really noticing how often I would do that, that I would sort of create this story that was palatable to me that would let me off the hook mm. and not have me be accountable for how I was showing up, how mm -hmm. I was, how I was being. There's so many takeaways from that when, and I think it's helpful to imagine having a conversation with Steve or someone that we hold in high regard and just imagine 
would they say the same thing to us? That's not even believable. That's not even the truth to, you know, so that we can learn to do that for ourselves, you know, and it's that whole evaluation is what I'm thinking true is what I'm saying really true and digging deeper. I just think that the instances that you've shared and the insights that you acquired from doing this work has had a huge impact in who you are being in the world today. And Carla, this has just been such a special and wonderful conversation. Is there anything else as we wrap up that you have thought about during our talk that you would like to share? I have a little sticker on my uh, the wall behind my computer that says, I am living love. And that's, I directly stole that from how I see Steve. And, and there was a time when I believed that Steve held an exalted position and just like that gap, that there was not a way for me to be how I saw Steve. Mm -hmm. That there were lots of other things that had opened up to me, but to be like Steve, well, Steve was special. And he is. I mean, I, I show love and regard Steve Hardison and I too am living love. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's beautiful way to wrap up because I think it reinforces something else that I have heard him say multiple times. There's nothing I do that you can't also do or be. And I think you just express that beautifully that we each can be that. We can be living love. So thank you, Carla, for your beautiful spirit, for your beautiful sharing. It's been such an honor to have this time with you. And I know this is going to be just very beneficial to our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you for listening. If you know someone who would benefit from today's conversation, please share this podcast with them. Also, we invite you to visit theultimatecoachbook.com so you can continue your personal exploration of being. There you will find links to join our wonderful community, get your own copy of The Ultimate Coach Book, and more. Simply go now to www.theultimatecoachbook.com. That's www.theultimatecoachbook.com. The link is also available in the show notes. We appreciate your support. Be blessed. Be you.